Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Good evening, children of the night. Come on in to the cabin. I had tried to get into the spirit of the holiday and put some pumpkins out, but those strange children came by last night and smashed them all. Sorry for the mess. But yes, Halloween is upon us. So depending on where you live and how you observe, happy Halloween, happy Samhain, happy All Saints or All Souls Day, and a happy Hop Tuna as well. As you know, we moved hosting providers a few months back. Our hosting provider, Acast, provides me with demographics of what countries do the most listening of our podcast. Australia comes in fifth on the list behind, surprisingly, Sweden. Didn't know we were so popular with you Swedes, but still happy to have you with us. Recently, I learned that Halloween has had a strange reception year to year in Australia. There are some Australians that really, really hate Halloween. It seems that it's either hated because it's a Christian holiday, which, as an aside, ask an American Christian if Halloween is on the list, see what they have to say, or the other larger reason, Halloween wound up being understood as a sign of American imperialism. How America forces its culture and influences on Australia, that is. I watched Crocodile Dundee and figured our two peoples were getting on just fine, but I heard about this and started doing some digging. I was listening to some catchy hip-hop. Who's this Iggy Azalea? Huh, turns out she's white, and what's this? Australian. Well, enough of this bamboozling. Let's listen to a bit of country music to take me back to America. This Keith Urban fellow really can put together some good American music. Well, slow down, he's Australian too? What are these Australians up to? But it's all in good fun. Americans, Australians, whoever you might be, it's time for Halloween. Put on a scary movie, play a board game with some zombies in it, and have a bit of cider. It's a great time of year. Let's hear some scary stories, children of the night. Kyle Moore has been writing for years. As a blogger, he has gained some notoriety. 
As his works have been published in USA Today, Reuters, and has his work quoted or cited in publications such as the New York Times and the Washington Post. Kyle has also worked as a freelance video game reviewer for jisgames.com, won a few awards and accolades in the sometimes maligned world of fan fiction. He currently has one completed novel for, for which he is searching for a market. Kyle lives with his two daughters in southeastern Virginia, not too far from where we are. And now, give a listen to Kyle Moore's Told You So. It was about a year ago when my daughter and I moved out of Charleston and into Goose Creek, partly to get away from big city life and partly to put the business about her mother behind us. Between the crime, busy streets, and bad memories, I felt we should trade the concrete and street lights for tall grass and trees adorned with Spanish moss. My boss, understanding the tragedy that our family had suffered, allowed me to telecommute as long as I didn't stray far from the home office. I found a house that backed up against the Goose Creek Reservoir, far enough from the naval base to grant us the tranquility we were looking for. It was a gorgeous two-story house, made to look like one of those old plantation houses, though admittedly a little more modest in size. But the three bedrooms were more than enough for Chelsea and me. I got the master bedroom and converted the smallest into my office. Chelsea, well, she just loved her room. It was twice as big as her old room, with hardwood floors and a window looking out over the reservoir. We spent a whole day in old clothes painting her room pink. I'm not sure if we got more paint on ourselves or the walls for all the horsing around we did. It didn't matter. It seemed like the first time either of us had really laughed in a long while. I can still hear her giggles echoing through the house, there surrounded by steamy southern humidity and the muzzy paint fumes. We were happy, the two of us. Goose Creek seemed like the new beginning we both needed after her mother passed on. Well, the summer came and went, as summers do in the south, hot and muggy. When a breeze came off the reservoir, it would be something of a relief. But summer in South Carolina was summer in South Carolina. Lots of shade, iced tea, and showers just to keep the film of perspiration at bay. School came, riding on the winds of autumn. Chelsea was nervous, of course, and even started to cry a little on the first day of school, despite being almost ten. After losing one parent, I knew she didn't want to let go of me. But it took her only a week or so before she was coming home every day with a big, bright smile on her face. A smaller school went fewer bullies, and it seemed more kids eager to make a new friend. Before we knew it, we'd slipped straight through a mild winter and were staring down another summer. A whole year had passed, and we've carved out a simple, pleasant life for ourselves. I was excited to have my little girl around the house during the day. But there was one huge obstacle. Work. When most people hear telecommuting, they think of waking up when you want to, doing your work at your own pace, and only putting on proper clothes if you feel like it. The reality of telecommuting was not so grand. Working from home still meant full work days, client calls at all hours of the day, and being checked on regularly by the boss via webcam. This, however, was another benefit of Goose Creek. I felt comfortable letting Chelsea go out and explore, ride her bike, walk to a friend's house. I made a point of making sure she stopped by the house for lunch every day. We also had a long discussion about how far she was allowed to roam, and she wasn't allowed to play near the reservoir while I was working. Chelsea didn't fuss one bit. She had never experienced so much freedom in her life. One day in late June, my little girl walked into the house at half past eleven. 
Her pink t-shirt and shorts were cleaner than normal, and her auburn ponytail wasn't half as frazzled as it was on most summer days. She met me in the kitchen with a quizzical look on her face. She climbed onto one of the stools by the big window facing the street and asked, Daddy, what are they doing down at the end of the street? I turned to look out the window and frowned. I don't know, Chelbear. What does it look like they're doing? Chelsea shrugged as she pulled her plate close. I made tuna fish sandwiches and iced tea, and she'd taken a huge bite and was still chewing when she said, Manners, I said. She swallowed her bite and repeated herself more clearly. Looks like they're digging, but I don't know why. It was my turn to shrug. Probably just road work or something, I said before biting into my own sandwich. Can I explore it after lunch? She asked. Well, I don't know if that's a good idea, Chelbear. Could be dangerous. I'll be careful, Daddy. Promise. She had put on her big-eyed expression, the one that is supposed to melt a father in place, and one that I had fought hard against to build up resistance. At the same time, I remembered when I was her age, and how I probably wouldn't even have bothered asking my parents. When I thought about the trouble I would get into, I wondered how it was I ever made it to adulthood. Finally, I relented, but only a little. You can ask the workers, if there are any that aren't too busy. But that's it, understand? You aren't to cross any boundaries or touch anything. We got a deal? Chelsea looked like she was going to try to haggle with me on terms. She did that sometimes. She thought better of it, and with her big bright smile, nodded and said, Deal. We finished our sandwiches and tea. Chelsea hurriedly washed up before dashing out of the house, the screen door banging loudly in her wake. I carried myself back to my office, checked in with my boss, forgot all about the road work Chelsea was so excited about at lunch. Chelsea was eager to remind me when she brought it up later in the evening as I threw some burgers on the grill for dinner. There wasn't nobody there when I went to look, Daddy, she said, pouting a little. Anybody, I corrected her. She scowled that scowl that said I knew what she meant. It was her mother's scowl. Ignoring it, I told her she could try again in the morning after breakfast, and that, combined with the burgers topped with lots of ketchup, seemed to satisfy her. I suppose I half expected her to forget about the whole thing. Maybe I didn't expect anything at all. It just wasn't something that was registering on my radar until the morning came, and Chelsea could hardly wait to rush out and see what was going on down the road. She was half out the door when I called her back to remind her to brush her teeth. After a perfunctory scrubbing, she gave me a half-hearted hug and bolted. Strange, I thought, as I found myself following her footsteps out to the edge of my front lawn to get a better look at what had captivated her so. I looked down the road in the same direction Chelsea was jogging and saw nothing more than a big pile of rubble on the side of the road. There were no road signs or caution tape, just mounds of black and gray rocks. It seemed harmless enough, but at the same time I felt a sense of apprehension creep up through my gut and latch onto my spine. You be careful and remember what I told you, Chelbear. I hollowed after her. She looked back over her shoulder and smiled at me, her hand giving me a thumbs up, before returning her attention to the rubble pile. I shook my head and made my way back inside. I had a web meeting with some new clients to prepare for. When I got back to my office, I discovered I could actually see just a sliver of the rubble pile from my office window. The needs of my meeting drew my attention away, but when I logged off the group video chat, I grabbed a cup of coffee and found myself staring down the road at the heap. Chelsea was nowhere to be seen, probably off to go visit with one of her friends. No doubt the allure of the rocks had already worn off, but it was odd. 
If it was road work, there should have been some orange somewhere, a sign or something. There should have been workers, too, with day-glow vests and hard hats. But there was no one. I was about to put together a report for my boss on the meeting when movement from the rubble stopped me. Fear swiftly shooting down my throat and forming a solid, heavy pit in my stomach. There was someone there working after all, but it was all wrong. It's a pretty long street, so I couldn't be exactly sure of what I was seeing. But Dayglow is pretty unmistakable, and this guy wasn't wearing any at all. Instead, his tall, gaunt frame was dressed in black from head to toe, long sleeves and all. That bit I found odd. Who would dress that way in this heat? Otter still was his hat. He looked like he was wearing one of those old stovepipe hats. I didn't even know they made those anymore outside maybe costume shops and elementary school classrooms. But there he was, all in black and with a stovepipe hat and a shovel slung over his shoulder. The curious figure vanished behind the pile. It was such a strange image that I was tempted to think it was just my overactive imagination. Real or not, all thoughts of the unsettling figure were pushed out of my mind by the chime from my computer informing me that my boss needed to chat. The noise startled me so much I spilled coffee over a stack of reports, ultimately pushing the image of the dark stranger out of my mind so I could focus on the newly burgeoning coffee crisis, along with the numbers and contractual obligations and everything else that had come up in the meeting. At lunch, Chelsea informed me that, again, to her disappointment, she didn't find any men working at the site, but she did have something new to share. Daddy, I think there's something strange about those rocks. What's that, Shelbear? Well, I don't think they're rocks at all. Why's that? They're all smooth and shiny. I've never seen any rocks in the wild as smooth and shiny as that, putting on a facial expression that declared to the world that she was an expert on the subject of the smoothness of natural rocks. I love that bit. I frowned. You didn't go messing about with that pile, did you, Chelbear? Of course not, Daddy. I was just looking. And when no one turned up, I went over to Teresa's. Her daddy put up a tire swing. For a moment, I contemplated telling her that the man in the black clothes and the stovepipe hat, but then thought better of it. I didn't know what was going on down the street, but I figured the less curiosity I encouraged, the better. There was no more discussion of the rubble at the end of the street until that evening. It was too hot to cook, so I made a quick salad and cut up some leftover chicken for dinner. The two of us were eating on the back patio when Chelsea said, Whatever they're doing, they're definitely digging. Oh? Mm-hmm. There's a big old ditch just on the other side of that pile, Chelsea said. Did you ever find someone to tell you what it's all about, I asked. Chelsea shook her head, clearly frustrated. No, but I aim to find out, she declared. I think now that if it weren't for the new client, and all the extra hoops my boss was making me to jump through to make the new contract work, I would have put an end to things, then and there. But as it was, I had to spend the whole evening running numbers as Chelsea watched TV and the rubble pile was, yet again, pushed aside. I didn't even think about it again, until a few days later at lunch when Chelsea announced, Daddy, I think those rocks are broken up tombstones. Now what in the world would make you say something like that? I said as my fork hovered between my plate and my mouth. My mind instantly reverted back to the tall figure in the stovepipe hat, and the uneasy prickling sensation crawled down my spine. Well, like I said, they're all smooth and shiny. I think I saw some writing on some of them. I think one little girl's imagination is running away with her, that's what I think, I said pointedly. 
Chelsea responded with her patented scowl. I was about to forbid her from looking into the pile any further, but sometimes the quickest and surest way to make sure a kid does a thing is to forbid her to do it. So I let the subject drop. We went back to our normal routine, Chelsea running out the front door and me slogging back to my office. Again, I spared the heap of rocks another look. The ditchman, the man in black, Chelsea's assertion that they were crumbled up tombstones, it all just kind of balled itself up into a tiny knot of unease in my stomach. And then I stared at the mound and thought, hell, it's just some rocks. Maybe the neighbor's digging them up to lay a new driveway. There were a ton of completely rational explanations, none of which were the least bit frightening. And that was all I thought about that until Chelsea came back home from supper, holding a big gray-black hunk of something. She thrust it into my hand as I looked on dumbfounded. With a triumphant air, she put her hands on her hips and said, "'Told you so.' I looked down at the hard, heavy mass in my hand. It was, indeed, smooth and polished on several of its sides, rough and irregular on others, and it was a model gray and black, kind of like those fancy countertops you sometimes see in newer kitchens. And there, on one of the smooth, glossy faces, was a carved uppercase T. For one thing, Shellbearer, this doesn't prove a thing. This could have come from a statue, a plaque, a sign, or anything. Just because someone carved some letters into a rock doesn't make it a tombstone, I explained. For another, I thought I said you weren't to be messing around with that pile. I made myself very clear you were allowed to ask whoever was working what they were doing, and that was it. I didn't yell at Chelsea often. She rarely ever needed it. But when I did yell at her, she always looked so wounded, so hurt. I'm sorry, Daddy, she said in a small voice, and I, well, hell, I just gave her a hug and sent her to go wash up for supper. I hoped the whole episode was over. I wanted it to be over, but when Chelsea came in for lunch the next day, any thoughts that the mystery of the rubble pile was a thing of the past were completely ruined. Daddy, that work. It has to do with dead people. I'm sure of it. Caught somewhere between inhaling my soup and spitting it back out, I ended up in a violent coughing fit that only made my temper worse. Damn it, Chelsea. I thought I made myself clear. Now this has gone on long enough. Do you understand? No more. But no buts. You seem to have forgotten, young lady, that I am your father. Is that clear? Her eyes wobbled in a pool of fledgling tears. Normally that would have been enough to calm me down, but now I was yelling, Is that clear? She didn't answer as tears spilled down her cheeks and her lips quivered. Chelsea opened her mouth, almost as if to speak... Then a glint of defiance shone through those tears. In a flash, she pushed away from the table. There was a single, searing moment when contempt flashed in her eyes, and then I watched as she ran out of the house. I was about to chase her down when the phone rang. I considered ignoring it, but if I ignored even one call from my boss, I could lose the telecommute privileges. Hissing curses under my breath, I checked the phone and answered it. I should have gone after her. I know that now. But the next thing I knew, I was chained to my computer, hunting down all the technicalities my boss needed to make this new contract work. The time for Chelsea to come home had come and gone. I was already worried when she stormed out of the house, 
But when the sun had started to bloat and red and she wasn't home, I was on the verge of panic. Outside, the shadows began to stretch and deepen, and the rock pile down the road took on a strange, dark, mysterious quality. Unsure what to do, I started looking through the list of moms in my address book. I bit back the worry in my voice as I called one after another, trying to let my fear show, even as I asked if they had seen my daughter. Each call ended up being a different variation of the same theme. No, sorry, Chelsea hasn't been here today. Is something wrong? I was about to call the fifth mom when I heard the back door swing open and then slam shut. Oh, thank God. I breathed, not even bothering to hang the phone back on its cradle. Chelbear, honey, I'm so glad you're... The words died in my throat, my muscles locking up as I turned the corner and stepped into the kitchen. Terror poured over me as I stared at the thing in my kitchen. It was a man, or at least it had once been a man, though how long ago it was impossible to say. Where there should have been eyes and skin, there was now only bone caked in black soil. Eye sockets empty as they stared blankly back at me. His clothes were once fine, a black tuxedo, or at least a good suit, but the shirt had been torn to shreds, revealing his ribcage, mottled gray with rot and earth. Underneath, I could make out shriveled, blackened organs, turned hard and formless with time, held in places by clumps of fetid soil. One hand clutched a stovepipe hat, almost as though this thing was too polite to wear it indoors. His other hand rested on the shoulder of my baby girl. Chelsea. Her skin was ashen, her hair limp, her eyes empty, almost as if they were as hollow as those of the corpse beside her. The dead, empty gaze turned up to me, and in a small voice I could only just recognize as belonging to my daughter, she said, Told you so. That was Kyle Moore's Told You So, as read by Logan Waterman. Logan has a degree in technical theater from California State University and has worked in many theaters large and small, professional and amateur. He has also worked for Apple Computers, so have I, by the way, sold hot tubs and comic books and prepared court documents. He has taught and performed sword fighting for the stage and run lights for a local band until they broke up. As of this writing of this bio, he has narrated for the Drabblecast and nearly all of the District of Wonders shows Starship Sofa, right here on Tales of Terrify, and the late lamented Protecting Project Pulp in Crime City Central. He's looking at you, far-fetched fables. Logan currently lives in Northern California with Grendel, a huge black beast whose primary occupations are sleeping, stocking the fish in the aquarium, and keeping the house safe from the hordes of invisible monsters that come out after dark. And Morgana, a small fluffy queen who rules her domain with an iron paw. The fish remain unimpressed. Thank you, Logan. Our second story comes from no stranger around these parts, John Everson. John Everson is the author of more than 100 published short stories and several novels of horror and dark fantasy. His first novel, Covenant, won the Bram Stoker Award for a first novel in 2005. His sixth novel, Nightwear, was a Bram Stoker finalist in 2013. 
Over the past decade, he has published eight novels, Covenant, Sacrifice, The Thirteenth, Siren, The Pumpkin Man, Nightwear, Violet Eyes, and The Family Tree. His first five novels were issued in mass market and trade paperback by Dorchester Leisure Books. Limited hardcover editions were also issued from Delirium Books, Necro Publications, and Bad Moon Books. In 2011, Amazon.com's 47 North imprint licensed his leisure catalog, and his most recent novels have been released through Sawin Publishing. Covenant, Sacrifice, Siren, and Nightwear have been translated or are in the process of being translated and released in Poland, Turkey, France, and Germany. John shares a deep purple den in Naperville, Illinois, with a cockatoo and cockatiel, a disparate collection of fake skulls, twisted skeletal fairies, Alan Clark illustrations, and a large stuffed eeyore. There's also a mounted Chinese fowling spider named Stoker, courtesy of fellow horror author Charlie Jacob, an ever-growing shelf of custom-mixed CDs, an acoustic guitar that he can't really play, but that his son likes to hear him beat on anyway. Sometimes his wife is surprised to find him shuffling through more public areas of the house, but it's usually only to brew another cup of coffee. In order to avoid the onerous task of writing, he records pop-rock songs in a hidden home studio, experiments with the insatiable culinary joys of the jalapeno, designs book covers for a variety of small presses, loses hours in expanding an array of gardens, and chases frequent excursions into the bizarre visual headspace, of 70s Euro horror DVDs with a shot of Maker's Mark and a tall glass of Newcastle. I'm sipping on a little Angel's Envy right now, so if you like whiskey, John, that might be for you. Lend your ears. We're about to hear John Everson's In Memoriam. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. They say the memory is the first to go. That was his first thought as he turned his head from one side of the pillow to the other and recognized nothing. Jace got up from the sagging mattress and wondered where his memory had slipped away to. His lower back spasmed as he walked across the tiny room, nearly spilling him into the yellow-rimmed window shade he'd crossed to open. 
He caught himself with a shaking palm on the wall, gasping at the pain and the sudden dizzying speed of his heart. Two inches to the left and he might have fallen forward, full force, and put his hand through the glass. And after his hand, maybe his whole body, unless his neck hung up on a jagged shard and left his body dangling there on the inside of the room, while his lifeblood spilled down his severed neck and the fractured glass to pool on the pavement below. Or was there pavement? Jace shook his head, trying to clear the cobwebs. He didn't remember. He didn't know where the room was or what was beyond, or how he'd gotten there in the first place. The shade pulled down and released like a slingshot, clattering around the room at the top of the battered wooden window frame. Jace squinted at the sudden influx of sun, blinking away tears. He leaned forward to look outside. An empty parking lot. Tufts of grass split the graying surface. To the left, Jace could make out the rusted base stanchions of some kind of large signpost. And to the right, a single car overran the yellow guidelines of a designated parking space. The lot seemed to end at the back of an abandoned field which stretched on to disappear into a stand of trees far away in the horizon. Jace turned back to the window and took a closer look at the room itself. There wasn't much to look at, a single bed, a thin mattress that had obviously seen the press of many a heavy backside. A green floral comforter dragged off to the floor where he'd thrown it, and the only other piece of furniture was a dark green nightstand, topped by a thrift shop lamp and a $5 traveler's alarm clock. The LED read 1121. From the growl of his gut, he also assumed it had been some time since he'd last eaten, though he couldn't remember when or what his last meal might have been. There were no other personal effects in the room, but Jace found a set of keys in his pants pocket. The world felt skewed, everything tilted 45 degrees. He stared at the keys and wondered what doors they opened. He wondered who he was. He knew his name, and when he touched his arms, they felt familiar. Right. But everything else felt gray. Jace stepped through a doorframe into a tiny bath and plunged his hand into the water from the sink faucet, splashing his face again and again. When he looked up into the mirror, he saw a face dripping with exhaustion, deep set eyes ringed by shadowed purple circles, and a patchy growth of a beard spread like a rash across his wide cheeks. Lips cut through black stubble like a pale river. It was a face that Jace didn't recognize, but then he had no mental picture of himself at all to compare it to. He looked closer, trying to remember. Despite his fatigue, the mug that stared dully back at him didn't look that old. Just a worn-down thirty-something, not the ancient, creaking, geriatric his back and limbs and mind seemed to indicate he might have physically become. Jace wiped the water and his frown on a dingy white hand towel and decided to see what lay beyond the room. The keys in his pocket started the car in the parking lot, but Jace didn't know where to go. He edged it out onto an empty side road, clandestine road, the sign read. He laughed at the irony of that. Behind him, the vacant shell of the building he'd awoken inside loomed like a cut-out prop against a gray sky. These moments hardly seemed real, yet no matter how many times he tried pinching his skin or biting his tongue, he did not wake up, nor did he remember. At least he didn't remember what he had done yesterday or what people called him, but he did remember learned motor skills like walking and opening doors and driving a car. In a haze of time... He vaguely remembered once getting his driver's license, which allowed him to drive the car. Speaking of which, Jace pulled to the side of the road and put the car in park. Then he pulled out his wallet. 
If he had a license, he at least would know where to go home to, since it included his address, so long as he hadn't moved recently. In moments, he had discovered his address and cross-referenced it with a map from the glove box. The morning fog lifted as he navigated his way home, stopping once at a gas station to find out exactly where he was starting from, since clandestine wasn't on the map. He laughed at that. The gray morning fog had lifted by the time he stepped into the wooden porch of the small bungalow he apparently called home. He froze for a second as he slid the key into the lock. What if he was married and there was a woman inside whom he didn't know? Or worse yet, what if he was divorced and he no longer actually lived there? The lock clicked and before he could think of any further debilitating scenarios, the door had creaked open. He stepped inside, shutting it quietly but firmly behind him. He knew in an instant that nobody was home. The air hung stagnant, stale, yet spiced with a hint of cumin. He quickly saw why when he stepped past an empty dining room table and onto the narrow run of the kitchen. The long counter meant for a cook's workspace was littered with empty Thai takeout boxes. As he stepped into the room, something small and brown darted away from one of the boxes to slip in between the creamy counter backsplash and the kitchen wall. From the corner of his eye, Jace thought he saw the dash for safety repeated elsewhere around him. He shivered and left the room to the bugs. Upstairs in the bedroom, he found a rumpled mess of pale sheets wound inside an ocean-blue comforter. Elegant gold threads slipped and curled in subtle filigree patterns across the thick bed cover. They glimmered like firefly capillaries in the dull light as he threw the sheets up to cover the crushed mound of pillows. Apparently, he hadn't cooked or made the bed in a while. He ran a finger across the dark wood of a woman's dresser and stared at the gray silk that had collected there or dusted, or cleaned. He reached around a ceramic statue of the Virgin Mary to pick up a picture frame from the dresser. The frame enclosed an action shot rather than a portrait. He recognized a younger version of the face he had seen in the mirror this morning, broad cheeks with a shadow of time turning to whiskers, thick black eyebrows pulled back against an unmanageable tousle of hair. He was laughing in the photo, as was the woman whose shoulder he draped an arm around. One long lock of cinnamon hair obscured her right eye, but her left held a secret mirth of a cat's eye, emerald and squinting at whatever moment they shared, captured in that second when all the two of them could do was gasp for air from laughter while holding back the tears of life. He searched his memory for some clue, but his brain remained mute. His heart did not turn over. Jace felt no connection at all to the picture or the woman. Next to the frame was another, this one a posed portrait of a small child, a boy judging by the outfit. The toddler knelt in front of an obviously fake fall photo backdrop, chubby hands locked together atop a small stepladder, with a collage of red and orange and browned leaves behind him. From the light of the photo, it appeared that the child's eyes were green, like his mother's, Jace guessed. I knew these two well, if I kept their pictures on my dresser, he supposed. Girlfriend and her kid? His own wife and son? He realized suddenly that there was a ring on the fourth finger of his left hand. God! Jace slammed his fist down on the dresser and a bottle of women's perfume shivered on the edge of a small shelf next to the mirror. It fell and shattered on the wood below and the room filled with a dizzying scent of gardenias and vanilla. Jace breathed in the scent and gasped. Black lace slipped high and stark on the cream of her thigh and he moved his lips further up into the warmth of her tongue teasing at her sweetness as he inhaled that warm elixir of sex. 
Her fingers twined in his hair, pulling him closer as he tasted her heaven and breathed in her perfume. Lust mixed with the lush of gardenias, woody vanilla spiced with love. His eyes flickered at the intensity of the moment as she pressed harder against him and filled the perfumed air with the soft cry of her pleasure. In a flash, the moment was gone again, and Jay staggered backwards, resting against the bed. He pressed a palm to his cheek and closed his eyes again, trying to delve deeper into the memory, further into the moment unlocked, and then stolen away again. But now he only smelled the overpowering thickness of spilled perfume, and presently he went to the bathroom to find a wash rag to sponge up the spill before it ruined the wood. It was his dresser, he supposed, so he might as well take care of it. He opened the bedroom and kitchen windows and cracked the front door to let in a breeze. The air chilled him to the bone and the furnace kicked on and ran and ran. He couldn't keep up with the first breath of winter, but the cold braced him, woke him. He'd been in a fog since he'd woken this morning in the strange bed, and now he needed a plan. Something had happened to him and he needed to find out what. Was he in danger? Where was his wife and, he supposed, his son? Who could he call to find out? He glanced across the room and saw a black and silver answering machine station sitting on an end table, one receiver poking its thin plastic antenna at the ceiling. A red light flashed incessantly, a heartbeat demanding notice. Jace reached out to touch the button to hear the message and then hesitated. His neck grew instantly cold. What if he didn't want to know? He needed to know. Hey Jace, it's Bill from work. Uh, You remember work, don't you? We remember you, but we haven't seen you this week, or heard from you, and well, listen, I'm sorry about this, I really am, but you brought this on yourself, man. I mean, we were really understanding after Becky and, well, you know, but it's been months now, Jace, and you're not any better. We never know when you're going to turn up, or if you're going to turn up at all. I talked to you about this last week, and you promised that was the last time. Well, I'm afraid this is the last time. We've got to pull the plug and get someone in here who's here, Jace. I'm really sorry about this because you're a nice guy, and I know it's been a lot to handle, but, um, well, listen. I'll see you around, I'm sure. So, he apparently gotten himself fired from wherever it was he worked. He would have called back and found that much out at least, but the phone said unlisted number on the call log. Jace closed the door and the kitchen windows. He was now cold inside and out. Stacking the partially empty takeout cartons one side of the other, he cleared the kitchen counter of debris, wiping up the food and stains with a wet paper towel. That's when he found the notepad by the kitchen phone. The edges of the top sheet were covered in scrawled notes and doodles. Tai Bonsai, 555-1223, read one note, which matched the name on the boxes he'd just thrown away. Saturday at 8, read another note, without further description. Who knew what he'd been planning for Saturday, or even which Saturday? Gene says, quote, is no, read another, and nothing lasts, still another. As he searched for memory to explain them, to find context, Jace wondered if all the notes people scrawled by their phones were so oblique, at least to a stranger, and he was a stranger at the moment, a stranger to his own life. At the bottom of the sheet, hedged off in the corner by a triple cross-hatched box, was another phone number, this one surrounded by a single explanatory note. She can help. Jace picked up the phone and dialed the number. He didn't know what she could help with, but at that moment he'd take any help he could get. A cool female voice answered on the fourth ring. 
How can I help you? She asked. I'm not really sure, he said. I can't really remember how this all started. He was surprised at her answer. That's a great start. The road seemed vaguely familiar as Jace wound through the city following the directions the woman had given. After a while, he realized it was more than familiar. He pulled through the narrow steel gate and drove into the parking lot of the building that teased the sky in a defiant thrust. Jace wondered if he'd taken the same parking space as he'd left earlier this morning. Shrugging and curious, he exited the car and walked toward the building where he'd awoken just hours before. The parking lot was still empty, but for his car. The door opened just a creak, and Jace could see the shadowed glint of a large brown eye through the narrow opening. It is you, she said, and a chain clattered metallic against the door as it opened further. Come in, she said. Jace stepped inside but didn't immediately follow her after closing the door. The room was exactly as he remembered it from this morning, only now there was a woman inside, and that made everything about the space different. She wore only two thin strips of black lace lingerie, above and below a tightly cinched corset. Jace followed the bob and dangling corset laces as she crossed the room and sank onto the bed. She patted the mattress beside her and beckoned him over. Come here, she said in the lowest melody of near silence. He obeyed her, taking her all in as he came to stand beside her and joined her on the bed. Her eyes watched him, wide and brown as a doze lashes unblinking. A haze of lushy black hair cascaded over her shoulder, broken in its midnight by a thick strand that glowed as red as neon, as red as her glossed lips, as red as the balm that traced and overwrote the thin seam of her eyebrows. She was a black cherry, lush and waiting for him. But why? And waiting for what? She had not been terribly surprised when he'd called and seemed to recognize him when he stepped into the doorway. Jace instinctively knew as she slid a hand easily up his back and shoulder that he'd been with her the night before, here, in this bed. He couldn't remember a minute of it, which was a shame. As he looked closer at her vanilla-scented skin, he knew that she must have been very good, perhaps a -a once-in-a-lifetime partner. I don't know who you are, he said suddenly, a tiny flicker across her lips. I don't know why I was here last night with you. She blinked but did not deny his supposition. I don't really know anything anymore. She nodded, and this time grinned, exposing a smile that could have lit the room. That's good, she said. Her voice was honey mixed with cloves, sweet but edged in dark peat. She pulled him against her and ran cool fingers up his temples. Let's keep it that way. Jace could feel his body relax, the frustration of the day fading out of him with every stroke of her fingers. She pressed him back to the mattress and he laid his head against the pillow. She coiled around him like a velvet robe, her thighs slinky and warm against his, the tight cinch of her waist hard against the place where he grew hard, and the swell of her chest a cushion that both called him forward and pressed him down. He breathed her in and the scent of vanilla suddenly filled the room. Vanilla and gardenias, like this afternoon when he had... When what? He wondered... The press of her lips now whispering something to his ear, and then the light flick of her heat warmed his lips as her tongue teased him. What about this afternoon? he asked aloud, and she shushed him, pressing against him with all her body. Her hands ran up and down his ribs and arms, and as she did, he felt strange, disoriented. The room seemed to swim in the heady scent of... 
of... No! Jace pushed her back and off of him. The woman nearly fell to the floor in his violence. He shook his head, struggling to clear the cobwebs that had grown across his vision like cotton. What are you doing to me? He said and slapped his own face. In a heartbeat she was there, kissing his reddened cheek. But this time he did not succumb. He backed away and put out a hand to keep her at bay. She crouched on legs creamy as vanilla, her chest flushed and cherry red, and heaving now. Her lips were wet and she licked them nervously. I need to kiss you, she begged, and crawled forward again pushing her way around his hand. He tried to fend her off but she was faster, darting through his fumbling hands to sink a wet, pink tongue quickly between his lips. Jace felt the world rush away and everything tasted hot. His thighs itched and his eyes refused to stay open. He tasted something warm and smoky, something sweet, something vanilla. Jace shoved her away again, disengaging violently from her kiss. She surged back instantly and he yelled again, No! She took his shoulders between her hands, trying to pin him between the wall and her chest, and he slipped one arm free. He slapped her, hard, across the face. This time she did fall back and off the bed. Jace leapt after her, and before she could get up, he cuffed her wrists with his palms and held her to the floor. She twisted and thrashed against him, but he used his weight to hold her down. What did you do to me? His voice grated as he struggled to remain on top. Why was I here last night? Why can't I remember anything? Let me go, she hissed back. I did what you paid me to do. Tell me, he insisted. I'll do better than that, she said. Let me go, and I'll show you. He released her, and pushed back to sit on the floor as she sat up herself, rubbing her wrists. Her face was still dark where he'd slapped her. She was so fair-skinned it would probably bruise. The thought disgusted him. He was no woman-beater. Or was he? He couldn't remember enough to know. What is this place? Who are you? He said, calmer now. Call me Letty, she said, not easing the tension of her body as she faced him. Her voice betrayed a sadness that stretched deeper than any physical pain. You came to me for help. Let me help again. She reached out a hand to him, but he batted it away. Let me, she said. This time I will help you remember, since that is what you wish. This time he let her touch him, and as she ran fingers up his face and around his neck to draw him close, he felt his pulse quicken. The fuzziness in his mind began to fade back and his mind seemed to tighten. Letty's eyes gazed into his own, and he could see his own reflected back at him, gray eyes wide with fear and a growing pain. Her tongue slipped into his mouth again and her fingers began to undress him as his own fumbled with the string of her corset. With every breath he shared with her, with every touch of his skin to hers, his world grew sharper. He remembered his parents, Lois and Bill, and the cottage they still kept in Michigan. For no reason, he found himself thinking of skinny-dipping with a blonde girl down at the quarry on one dark, amazing night when he had come home for a weekend from college. He had gone to the quarry alone for a late-night swim and found himself an hour later exploring the cool skin of a beautiful girl who had come to the lake for the same reason. Escape the problems of the day, freedom from everything that had gone before. Instead, they had become entangled in each other, a new problem if a sweet one. As he thought those words, Letty suddenly became clearer to him. He had come to her for the same reason. He remembered unzipping the black of her thin black dress and watching in amazement as it fell to the floor. The only way out is in, she said and wrapped her arms around his shoulders, 
pressing her bare chest to his shirt. I hope you don't mind coming in. He let her undress him and lead him back to the bed, tears forming in his eyes as he thought about why he'd come and felt a rush of guilt for what he was doing. Becky was gone now, but still, he was paying a woman to... to what? Letty had led him again to the bed, and he kicked off his pants as she shrugged out of her corset. She slid into the sheets next to him, wearing only black stockings, barely breaking their kiss the whole time they'd undressed each other. The scent of her hair tickled his nose and he realized it smelled like the perfume of his wife. She wore vanilla, had worn vanilla, the last time he'd kissed her. But that time, Becky had smelled not only of vanilla, but of iron, and her lips tasted strange and cold as he pulled away. His hands had been smeared in her blood, but he couldn't stop from pressing them to his face to wipe the horrible tears from his cheeks. Across the room, Danny lay dead too, like his mother. They'd carved things in his flesh, something only Jace would understand. The memory stabbed into the deepest pit of his heart like a coil of barbed wire, and he broke from Letty's kiss to cry out. This is why you came to me, she whispered, pulling him back. You don't have to remember all of it. I can take it away again. Jace put his fist to his eyes and shook his head. I have to know now. Then he pressed Letty to the bed and forced his tongue back into her mouth. It wasn't your fault. Letty gasped, pushing him back. You didn't kill them. He kissed her again, gripping the fullness of her breasts in desperation, not desire. But she let him use her, and in seconds, as his thrusts built to the point of unbearable need, the worst of it came upon him with the wave of his orgasm. The laughter froze on his lips. He'd been chuckling at the radio DJ's banter since he'd turned the key off in his ignition, and that laughter stayed with him right up until he saw the bloody handprint slapped against the buttercream wall of the living room. He called out for his wife, and before the echo faded from his voice, he had dropped his empty coffee mug and a sheaf of papers from work to the carpet as he ran through the kitchen, following a trail of crimson smeared on the carpet, across the tile and occasionally with a long, scabbing fingerprint down the wall. Jace was crying before he found the bodies. The blood led him on. It stopped sometimes and then pooled heavily where she'd fallen to rest before forcing herself up and onward, up the formerly white carpeted stairs and down the hall. He knew as soon as he hit the landing where that blood would lead. Her palm and fingerprints scratched and smeared in long digs against the hallway carpet. The tears were already to Jace's chin when he stepped into the nursery. Becky lay nude and still at the foot of Danny's crib. The carpet around her had darkened. Her hands clutched at the rails of the baby's bed, but it looked as if she had been unable to make it the final three feet. Her face was wet with tears, but it was the blood that Jace couldn't stop seeing, because the blood didn't come from just a stab or a gunshot wound. It came from two letters and three numbers carved deep into Becky's back. Jace could see the white of bone shining through the oozing gore around her spine. A.S. 032. That was all her back said, but the numbers were fatal. Jace moved closer, forcing his eyes away from his wife to look into the bed where she almost, but couldn't quite reach. Jesus! He cried aloud when he saw the still form of his little boy. The crib bars were coated with blood and the sheep and cows on the bedsheets appeared slaughtered in the sea of red. How could one baby have held so much life? Oh God, Danny! Jace had cried, barely seeing but not stopping until he held the still form of his sticky, lifeless boy against his chest. 
After a moment, he crumbled to the floor with a tiny corpse to sob beside the body of his wife. His fingers traced the wound that was already almost dry on his son's back. From the amount of blood smeared on the baby's hands and across the bars of the crib, he knew that Danny had been carved alive, just as Becky had been. The fuckers had left him their living note and coldly walked away. Jace had not killed his wife or his son, Letty was right in the literal sense, but they were condemned by his actions. AS-032 Danny's back bled the code, just as Becky's did. AS-032 was the last sequence in the passcode to the account that Jace had been siphoning from for the past six months, and someone had apparently gotten wise, someone who could never go to the police to complain. You lived in fear for months, Letty whispered to him, kissing his earlobe slightly. You were paralyzed with it. Nothing worked, there was only one way. Jace nodded, the memories all came back. The agony of his unconfessed guilt, the fear that at any moment... From any corner, they could finally step out of the darkness to end his life. The insomnia. The jumping at every creak and crack. The horrible racking tears that came without warning at work. In the car. As he made breakfast. In a flash, he saw the flyer again that he'd found at the back of the free weekly newspaper. In memoriam, read the headline. Let us remove those troublesome memories inside your brain with a kiss. What we give you here, you'll want to remember. But we'll make you forget. Ask for Mistress Letty to receive a $20 discount. The address was in the city's red light district, but Jace had called anyway and quizzed the woman who answered about whether they could really make a person forget. In the end, he set up the appointment. You're a hooker, he whispered. Letty raised one eyebrow, shrugged. And you're a thief. You hired me to take away your memories. I did. But you... He pointed at her stockings, her discarded corset. The only way out is back in, she smiled. My gift is forgetfulness, but you must be close to receive it. Jay slumped on the bed, pulling his arms around his knees in a fetal hug. The image of his wife and baby, carved with the code of his trespass, was now overlaid on everything he looked at. He closed his eyes and the blood still was there. He remembered now why he'd lost his friends and his job after the murders. The picture wouldn't leave. A.S. 032, carved in his family's flesh, in his mind's eye forever. Why did you take the money? Letty asked. For them, he said. For Becky, Danny, I didn't think a little bit here and there over time would be missed. I wanted to give Becky a new house, a place where Danny could run. His voice trailed off. And now? she asked. The tears came again, hot and fast raining down his cheeks to drip across his thighs. Jace rocked on the bed, crying without restraint, his voice gasping in tortured hitches as he begged the air for forgiveness. I'm sorry, he moaned. I'm so, so sorry. You didn't mean it, Letty said. I so bad, he cried. I don't want to forget them, but all I can see is their blood. Sometimes you have to be reborn to go on, Letty said. She stretched her arms out to him and laid back on the bed, slowly spreading her legs for him to move between. The only way out is in, she said once more. Jace rubbed the tears from his cheeks and looked through the bloody memory of AS-032 to see the beautiful woman who offered herself before him. I have to forget, he said, gritting his teeth against the sobs. 
I need to forget. He took Letty in his arms and pressed himself desperately against her, inhaling her scent and drowning his guilt in the warmth of her touch. She kissed his tears and then his lips. Through the window, the dull red glow of the neon sign that blazed in memoriam to anyone on clandestine road lit his way to her. Everything blurred and Jace pulled away, just for a moment to stare down at the dark pool of Letty's eyes. She did not blink. Goodbye, Becky, he said. A tear fell wet to Letty's cheek. Goodbye, Danny. The earthly scent of vanilla teased him forward, and he kissed Letty once more as the room slipped away. That was John Everson's In Memoriam, as read by Jonathan Sharp. Jonathan lives and works in a sleepy southern New Mexico town alongside his exceedingly talented wife, Paige. When he is free from the mountains of organic vegetables under which he works, he plays in front of the microphone in the hopes it may one day talk back to him. Thank you, Jonathan. That will be our show for the evening children of the night, our show was produced by our editors Philip Oldham and Scott Silk, and theme music by David Raiklin. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.